Well, this morning we return to Matthew chapter 7, and really to the mountaintop conclusion to Jesus' dynamic sermon. The Sermon on the Mount has encapsulated a large amount of doctrine and application, whereby Jesus is instructing uh, all of the believers around him about our relationship to the law of God. Now, it's not that adherence to the law of God produces Christians. I want to make that very clear. Rather, it is those who have been born again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and those who belong to God, we are eager to follow Jesus' kingdom ethics spelled out in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus is speaking to this crowd with an authoritative and prophetic voice. And not just as any prophet, but as the Bible teaches, the prophet. The one who, has, who is preeminently qualified to speak on behalf of God, because he himself is God in human flesh. In fact, every time Jesus opened his mouth to speak, he spoke prophetically. Every single word was pure revelation. And every time he spoke, according to John chapter 10, he spoke as the true shepherd. And his sheep heard his voice and follow him. However, John 10.5 says that, uh, Jesus says this, that a stranger they simply will not follow, but they will flee from him because they do not know, know the voice of strangers. For believers, it is ever important that we know who to listen to and therefore who to follow. However, Jesus warns at the end of his ministry that one sign of the last days is that false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, the elect. It is a real and present danger for believers to allow themselves to be led astray by false prophets, by false shepherds. And Christ knows this. And so at the end of his dynamic sermon, he issues the second warning pertaining to false prophets. If you turn to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to pick it up in verse 15. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 15. And as we noted last week when we were together, this final conclusion consists of four main warnings. Each of these is designed to drive home to the listener, uh, drive the listener to truth and to action. As I said last week, it kind of gets the listener off the ropes and gets us into the ring to respond. It's one thing to sit there and listen to teaching, but at a certain point, you have to act. And Jesus gives several commands here. The last week's command was uh, to, to enter by the narrow gate. And so again, they're called to action, and today we also have uh, an action step as well. But as we saw, he really uses a rhetorical device that only allows for two choices. Two choices, and one of which is the correct choice. And again, last week we saw verses 13 and 14, he sets up two ways. He sets up the broad way and the narrow way. And it is the narrow way that leads to life, and the broad way leads only to destruction. And in verses 15 to 20, we are faced with another analogy, another two choices, and really the imagery, as we're going to see, is two trees. The metaphor is going to be two trees, but there's something more behind it. The two trees illustrate to serve a warning, a serious warning, and that warning is this, to beware the wolves, beware the wolves. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 15, the Lord Jesus says this, Beware of the false prophets 
who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus warned about the danger of traveling down the broad way that leads to destruction. But then here he's warning about those who would lead you down that broad road to destruction. And really here, this is the warning about false prophets. Now the warning is not meant to be an exhaustive treatment on false prophets, but what he does say here is vivid. And he says more, I believe, than we think. And so in verses 15 to 20, I believe Jesus articulates three key truths regarding false prophets. Three key truths regarding false prophets. And as we're going to see, he's going to address their treachery, their fruitlessness, and their judgment. Three key points here. We're going to work through these. Number one, we're going to look first at their treachery. Their treachery. Look at verse 15 again. Here's the key warning. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, and here it is, their treachery, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He leads off here with an urgent warning, and here's the warning, to beware, to beware. Whereas back in verse 13, the command was to enter, pertaining to the narrow gate, here the command is to beware. Jesus is addressing a deep concern. If he's warning about which path to choose in verses 13 and 14, he's effectively warning about this broad way leading to destruction. This follow-up warning alerts us to those who would attempt to lead us astray down this destructive path. In fact, one sign, as I mentioned, of the end times is that false Christs and false prophets will arise and mislead, if possible, even the elect. This ministry of misdirection is certainly to lead people down this broad way. False Christianity is the Christianity of the broad way, which I would advocate is no Christianity at all, as Jesus has taught us. And so Jesus tells them, beware of the false prophets. What is a false prophet? What is a false prophet? Well, in order to determine a false prophet, we have to first understand what a true prophet is. What is a true prophet? Essentially, a prophet is a messenger appointed by God to deliver a message from God. So a messenger appointed by God to deliver a message from God. And he takes God's words and brings them to God's people. Whenever I've taught my children on prophet, priest, and king, uh, I drill that into their heads. Okay, what's a prophet? He takes God's words and gives them to the people. It's very simple. God appointed Prophets in the Old Testament, those who were appointed as God's messengers, men like Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, only just to name a few. Now, not everyone who said they were a prophet was to be believed. There was a litmus test for prophets. According to Deuteronomy 13, I'm just going to read this, these couple of verses for you. The, the scripture says, if a prophet arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and then he notes that the words accompanied by the sign, if they come true, then he is to be believed. 
So if he performs a sign or a wonder, some kind of miraculous thing, and then he's speaking on behalf of God, if what he says comes true, then you can believe him. He's a prophet of God. But Moses warns that if the prophet's words do not come true, or, this is oftentimes forgotten today, not just if the words don't come true, or if the prophet is going to lead you away from God, He says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Then he adds this in Deuteronomy 13, 4, you shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. Furthermore, he adds this, but that prophet, the false prophet, shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So, he says, you shall purge the evil from among you. It's serious stuff. If you were living in Israel at that time and a prophet came to town, it was a serious deal. Because literally it could be a matter of life or death whether or not that prophet was really from God or in essence from Satan. And so again, if the prophet's words came true and he was found to be leading people toward the obedience of God, then he was to be regarded as a true prophet. But if the prophet was shown to be a liar or if he was leading God's people into rebellion against the Lord, he was a false prophet and was to be put to death. And for every true prophet in Israel, there arose a multitude, a multitude of false prophets to tickle the ears of the people. In fact, one example comes in Numbers chapters 22 to 24. We read about a man named Balaam, who was really a prophet for hire, if you can imagine such a thing. And a man named Balak paid him to travel to Israel and to pronounce a curse on Israel. But God thwarts this plan by spooking the donkey that he's riding on to the point where the donkey can't even move. And when Balaam retaliates against the animal, God opens up the mouth of the donkey and begins to prophesy against Balaam. After which time the Lord himself appeared to him and opposed him until Balaam could repent of his sin. But this problem of false prophets was pervasive in Israel. Even in Jeremiah's day, he warned Israel of the coming judgment because of their sinful rebellion. But countless false prophets, countless false prophets undermined him at every twist and turn and told the people instead, there's nothing wrong. Don't listen to Jeremiah. He's just... He's in a bad mood. Don't listen to him. God's not angry with you. Everything's fine. Jeremiah is just being alarmist. But Jeremiah fires back in chapter 6 of his prophecy. He says, For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. All these people are liars, he says. And they have healed up the brokenness of my people superficially. They've told everybody, it's fine. You're not in trouble. Everything's great. Everything's fine. We're united. We're happy. Saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. Then he poses this question. Were they ashamed because of the abominations they've done? 
They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At that time, I will punish them, and they shall be cast down, says the Lord. This is a serious indictment against false prophets. Even Zechariah prophesies in chapter 13, uh, verse 2 of his prophecy, that when the Lord returns, one thing that he will be doing, he says, will be to cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they will be no longer remembered, and he will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. So the Old Testament repeatedly warns of false prophets. And Jesus, again himself, who is the true prophet, repeats this warning again here. Notice what he says about how they come. He says, the false prophets come to you in sheep's clothing. I believe there's a double meaning here behind what Jesus says. Believers, Christian believers, are often called sheep by the Lord. We are his sheep, and he tells us that he is our shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And so, when they come, these false prophets, in the appearance of being true Christians, when they pretend to be Christians, they're coming in sheep's clothing. But there's, I think, a more literal meaning here as well. In the days of the prophets, they did not come to the people dressed in fine linen cloths. Prophets oftentimes dressed in in wool garments and sometimes very rough clothing. Literally, the wool was sheep's clothing. So even though when false prophets would come to town, they would not dress like everybody else, false prophets would come and they would literally dress like true prophets to even further, more, furthermore deceive the people. And so Jesus is warning that false prophets will present themselves as true prophets and as true believers, but he's very clear they're not. They're not. He adds, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now, there are Christian leaders and teachers who belong to God, who are born again, who are saved, who are destined for heaven. However, they lead people astray by some of their teaching, and they need to be corrected. It is possible to be a Christian teacher and yet be a false teacher because you're propagating something that is not true, but you might not be condemned because you simply have to be corrected. And that kind of ministry happens all the time. But again, my point is that it is possible to be a false teacher, receive correction, repent of the sin, and then get back on track. But again, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not his point. He's not talking about those who are just a little bit wayward and have to be brought back. He's talking about something more sinister, Something more terrible. He's talking about false teachers, false prophets, heretics, and deceivers, who he says inwardly are ravenous wolves. They're diabolical. They're treacherous. They're wicked, Jesus says. Paul tells Timothy, that, and and Titus, by the way, that these kind of men, they do it for the money. They do it for the money, and they also do it to satisfy their own appetites and their own desires. Peter goes even further in chapter 2 of his second epistle. He says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, he's talking to the church, who will secretly, secretly, secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And then he says this, Many 
will follow their sensuality. Jesus said that last week, didn't he? Many will be on this broad road leading to destruction. Peter says many will follow the sensuality of false prophets and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words and their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So Peter warns in no uncertain terms, right in line with his master, Jesus Christ, of this kind of thing. These men are detestable men, out for destruction. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20.29, he says to the elders of the church, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. I know that after my departure, he says this, savage wolves, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, and draw away disciples after themselves. Peter warns of it. Paul warns of it. Again, why? Because Jesus warned of it. And so we know that these are not simply nice guys who are a little misunderstood. No, Jesus says these men are ravenous wolves, and we are to be aware and beware of them. But the question then is, okay, we hear a warning like that. He warns that false prophets, false teachers, deceivers are going to arise from within the congregation, from within the church among us. And we, and we should rightly be a little bit nervous about that and tentative about that. But the question is, well, then how do we know who they are? I want to heed the warning How do I know who they are? Jesus answers, number two, number two, their fruitlessness. Their fruitlessness. I think oftentimes it's easy for us to naively pretend that false prophets and false teachers don't exist. I'll tell you, you read so many different publications or see things on social media or on the internet or on different Christian TV channels, and it just seems like Everything, all this stuff is so popular and there's so many great teachers and such a huge following and everybody's great. And they market themselves really, really well. And I think it's easy, again, for us to just pretend like there's really no threat at all to us. I think we do this for several reasons. I think for one, I think we often don't want to do the hard work of discerning between truth and error. To discern truth and error, you have to, you have to know the word of God. You have to study doctrine and know when doctrine is being misinterpreted or mistaught. You've got to know a little bit of history. What have we always believed is true about the Word of God? But again, foremostly, study the Word of God. Be in a relationship with God. Commune with God. Seek Him. Pray to Him. Ask Him for help. To understand, and as Paul says to Timothy, to rightly divide and, and, and handle accurately the Word of Truth. You, gotta, you have to put the time in. You have, to, you have to eat your Bible, if I could say that. But seriously, know the Word of God. I think sometimes we don't because we don't want to do the work. But secondly, I think oftentimes we feel like we lack the doctrinal precision and insight to do it, and so we get nervous and tentative. Well, I, I'm not really as strong doctrinally. I don't know the Bible as well, and so I, I, you know, I don't really want to say anything. It seems weird to me. This, this preacher says something, I it sounds strange, but I just, you know what, I'll just give him the benefit of the doubt. 
Or third, I think oftentimes we're cowed into thinking that loving others means never calling out error. And my friends, that is a satanic lie. That loving other people means you never speak the truth. That's wrong. We are called to speak the truth. We are called to do it in love. But we are called to speak the truth. When you read some of the warnings that Paul and others give to those ministers who are dealing with false teachers, I'm reminded of even in in Paul's letter to Titus. He tells them, when you see false teachers, you need to rebuke them sharply that the church might be sound in the faith. Rebuke them sharply. I don't hear very much of that anymore, to be honest with you. The last reason I think that we don't do this is because when error is popular and pervasive, when we see a large number of people following this broad way, following false teachers, I think it's very easy to lack the courage to stand. But nowhere does Jesus absolve us from the responsibility of discerning and marking out false teachers. Now, I want to put a little footnote in there and say, I don't think it's wise for all of you to go start a blog and to start attacking every single person under the sun, as the habit of some. But we are to be discerning. We are to examine, to test everything, to study the scriptures like the noble Bereans did and test everything against the word of God. That is our charge. It's not just my job. It's not just the elder's job. It's all of your and my job together to discern and to beware. Twice in this passage, in verses 16 and verse 20, Jesus tells uh, the the followers that you will know them by their fruits. He says this twice. This is what's called an inclusio. Okay, you go from, uh, from one phrase here, verse 16, all the way down to verse 20. That's the same sentiment in both verses, and it kind of buttons the whole thing together. He says, you will know them by their fruits. This implies that false teachers are A, they're knowable, and B, that we're meant to know them. Because false prophets and false teachers, they don't walk into the church and announce to the whole congregation, how you doing? My name is John. I'm a false prophet. No one ever does that, do they? That would be really easy, but that's not how it goes. Rather, the Bible says that they they sneak in. They creep in unnoticed. That's what Paul says in Galatians 2.4. They just, they sneak in. They creep in. They, they, They find their way in. They weasel their way into the church for the purpose of causing damage. In fact, I believe this is a far greater problem than we realize. In fact, I think this happens all the time in popular evangelical Christianity. And let me just give you a perspective on this. Because I want you to see this is how this goes today. Some new teacher comes out and starts becoming popular. And they say some kind of interesting or insightful or encouraging things. And you hear them on on the videos, and you read about them in the, in the papers, and they, they sound really encouraging, really innovative, and all of a sudden, boom, they become a star. Celebrity Christianity. And in order to appeal to a mass audience, what they begin to do is they begin to sterilize their presentation. They sterilize the content in their book, their social media, their website. They, they want to make themselves as plain vanilla as possible so as to be more marketable to a larger audience. And so they'll use all the same terminology, God, Jesus, Bible, grace, gospel. They hear the same words that we would use, but no one's really sure what they believe. 
And sometimes this can go on for a long time. I would even say in some cases, I've seen it go on for decades for some people. And then once he or she is so popular that they are now canonized as evangelical royalty, it's then and only then do they begin to show their true colors. And now all of a sudden, what do you mean so-and-so believes in this? And they begin to teach things that are contrary to sound doctrine. But by that point, they have so many followers and so much popularity, and the the media and the publishing houses and the event coordinators, they're already... They're already with these people. They're invested now. And now, those people believe the best of them, even though they are poised to be led into serious error. And my friends, this happens all the time. Especially now. And I'll tell you, I would rather know someone's beliefs up front. If you have a differing point of theology than I do, tell me. And if it's a major point of theology then we're probably not going to do any kind of ministry together. I probably won't invite you into the pulpit. I probably will have some words with you. But maybe there'll be a minor point of doctrine, and we won't see eye to eye, and I'll just know that. And I'll say, okay, well, this is a brother in Christ. I don't agree with this and this and this, and you have to be careful, and you gauge it. Is it a first-level issue, a second-level issue? You know, And you can work with that. And I'll tell you, there is lots that we can do with other believers of of slightly different theology on minor things, they're still brothers and sisters. We can have unity even in those things that are not as essential. But at least you know. But when someone comes along and says, oh yeah, I'm just like you. Oh, absolutely, I totally believe that. I I can sign off on that doctrinal statement, no problem. And then down the road, it comes out that they're actually a, A ravenous wolf. But Jesus gives us some tools to discern. He gives us tools, and I want to show this to you. This is a way by way of analogy. He uses this very simple analogy of fruit trees. Fruit trees. Look at verses 16 through 18. Jesus says, You will know them, false teachers, false prophets, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Again, this analogy is very simple, so simple, and really it's axiomatic. What do I mean by that? It's a self-evident truth. Self-evident. Makes sense to you, makes sense to me. You've got good trees, and you've got bad trees. The thorn bushes and the thistles, that constitutes useless, weedy overgrowth. Everybody in this room, I'm sure, at their house, has all kinds of thorn bushes and just trash around your property. It's not good for anything. You're not going to go and cultivate it and plant it and put it on your windowsill. It's just weeds and thorns and garbage. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here. This is the kind of thing that you weed out of your garden so that uh, it's clear for the crops, the good crops, to grow in your garden. Jesus notes that you can't gather grapes from thorn bushes, can you? No. Likewise, you cannot gather figs from thistles. These two examples are going to illustrate the truth of verses 17 and 18. He says in verse 17, every good tree bears good fruit. That's obvious. That's obvious. But then he says every bad tree bears bad fruit. Again, you would expect a good, healthy grapevine to produce good grapes, right? 
And likewise, you would expect a good, healthy fig tree to produce figs. But then he offers the inverse truth in verse 18. He says this, A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Again, my friends, this is obvious. This is self-evident. And I think he uses this analogy and says it in such a simple way to drive this bigger point across. If this makes sense to us, that a good tree, you get good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit, and the, the vice versa can't happen. If that's straightforward, he wants us to understand the point and draw the connection. Verse 15 tells us that this has to do with false prophets. That's the context. False prophets. Verse 16 tells us, and what follows, this is how to discern who they are. In that case, the trees here, by way of analogy, represent people. But more specifically, prophets. You've got true prophets, that's good trees. And you've got false prophets, those are bad trees. Okay? The question is, well, how can you tell a true prophet from a false prophet? And the answer is, by their fruit. By their fruit. Well, then it brings the question around, well, what exactly is this fruit? What do you mean, Lord, by this fruit? I think it's very clear that that, this fruit is that which comes out of the heart. Jesus notes in Luke 6.35, he says, The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. But the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. What kinds of things constitute this evil treasure, this bad fruit? I think there's at least three things I want to show you here. I think, number one, it's their words and their teaching. Their words and their teaching. The first way to spot a false prophet or a false teacher is to listen to what they say. What's the message that they're getting across? Now, they might have a big, huge, toothy smile on their face while they're giving it to you. They might look really nice. They might be really kind as they're talking and very pastoral sounding and they're dressed well, whatever it may be. Listen to their words. What is the content of their teaching? Paul says in Titus 2.1, he tells the disciple to speak the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. So everything you say, he says, pastor, make sure that everything you say as you're teaching is fitting with sound doctrine. Don't step off the path. You have to align your teaching, align your thoughts, align your vocabulary. Speak and think in biblical category. But false prophets do not speak and teach the things that accord with sound doctrine. In order to gain a hearing, they will oftentimes say things to tickle our ears. They just want to tell us what we want to hear. If we want to hear everything's great, you're wonderful, you can find a teacher who will teach you that. If you want to hear that you're going to be rich and prosperous, you can find a teacher for that. If you want to hear that people owe you something, that you're a victim, and you live in this perpetual state of victimhood, you can find a whole bunch of teachers to teach you that. But if you want to know who you really are, if you want to know what your biggest problem is, what truly ails the world, if you want to know the one who made the world, the one who knows how to redeem you, who can redeem you by the blood of his cross, you look at the word of God, you listen to God. And his prophets will speak the things that are fitting with sound doctrine. True prophets will tell you the truth about God, the nature of sin and man, the gospel, Christ, the word of God. Going back to Deuteronomy 13, 
Once again, if a prophet's words were not true, it was very clear he's a false prophet. And so you will know a false prophet by his words or by his teaching. Number two, you'll also know bad fruit of a false prophet by his character. By his character. If a wicked person is a false prophet, Jesus says they're only going to speak evil and their conduct is going to be evil. Every year I hear about some false teacher who gets busted and bezeling money from his own ministry or running some kind of a scam or getting caught in adultery or worse. Remember, Jesus says a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. So the Bible is very clear here. Your sins are going to find you out. It's only going to be so long of time before that fruit starts to show and it will come out. Sadly, sometimes it comes out even after death. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, it is out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slanderous statements. According to 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, false apostles and deceitful workers will disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, he says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Remember, they come to you, they come to us in sheep's clothing. But in time, you will come to know them by their fruit, by their words, by their conduct, and number three, by their influence, by their influence. One way to know whether or not someone is a false teacher or a false prophet is to look at the effect that they have on other people. Again, Deuteronomy 13.2 notes that along with spouting false words, the false prophets were trying to lead the people of God away from Him and toward idols and false gods. And when the disciples of a teacher start to wander away from sound doctrine, and this happens all the time, you'll have some big, important, powerful, strong, influential teacher, and you're not quite sure what's going on with them, you think it might be wonky, and then you see their disciples around them kind of falling away, and you're like, what, what are they learning? And then all of a sudden it becomes very clear. You examine the teaching, and you say, oh, that's why they're being led astray. This happens, my friends, all the time. Beware, beware of this. You have to question, when they fall away from sound doctrine, sound worship, it's certainly because of false teaching. False prophets always have a negative effect, a negative influence on other people. And that's what Paul's getting at, by the way, in Romans 16, 17. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. And he says, And turn away from them. This rendering, keep your eye on troublemakers, literally, it's mark them. Mark them. It's like you're putting a target on them. He says, mark them. Keep your eye on them. When a teacher or a leader or a self-proclaimed prophet starts dividing the church, splitting people up, causing problems, causing dissension, introducing elements that are controversial and, as Titus 1.11 says, upsetting whole families. When you have families of believers who begin to fight over certain kinds of doctrine, where'd you learn that? Oh, so-and-so said this, and that's so wrong. It's not wrong. And they start to, to divide and fight over doctrine. Where is it coming from? 
I believe it's evidence of bad fruit. Jesus says, beware. Beware, my friends. Be careful. Watch out. Test everything. Test everything that comes out of this pulpit. If this pulpit spews error, fire me immediately. I'm warning you. Now, by God's grace, I'll be faithful. But test everything. Trust no one except Christ. At this point, Jesus has noted the treachery of false prophets as well as their fruitlessness. And then finally, he notes this. Number three, their judgment. Their judgment. Verse 19. He says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus, again, employs this tree analogy. But here, he really startles the audience, noting that the judgment on these false teachers and false prophets is going to be severe. Again, these false prophets who are ravenous wolves, these are evil-hearted men, those who seek to destroy the believer and lead them astray. He says that they will be cut down and thrown into the fire. When it comes to those who would try and damage the church, let me tell you, Jesus holds nothing back. Elsewhere in Matthew 18, verse 6, Jesus says that those who cause believers to stumble, they would be better off if they tied a millstone around their neck and go and jump in the ocean. He says it would be better for them if they did that than to deal with the punishment of leading believers astray. Now he applies that, he uses the analogy of children, but he's talking about his little ones, his sheep. There's a danger there. Matthew 23, Jesus offers nothing but curses and woe to false teachers who abuse his people. But the imagery here is of bad trees being chopped down and burned. My friends, this is judgment. This is judgment. John the Baptist says the exact same thing in Matthew 3.10. He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. My friends, there are no games being played here. But I believe that this warning of judgment serves two purposes. Two purposes, I believe, for us. Number one, it's a sober warning to all those who would seek to devour the church. False prophets and false teachers, even false believers who think they're going to come in and lead people astray. I've seen it in my own life, in my own churches. I've seen it in places I've gone. I'll never forget there is one instance where an elder was appointed, and his first day on the elder board, he had to resign. He made a very dramatic scene about it. Because there were were doctrines he didn't agree with with the church and began to espouse error. And the elders were shocked and they opposed him and they refuted his his doctrine and they told him from the scriptures why this was wrong and it was really an attack on the gospel. And eventually he and his family left the church and the elders warned him, do not take anybody with you. But lo and behold, a few families trickled out and began to go to their house. Now I don't know what has happened to that man since. I pray that he has repented. I pray that his doctrine has been corrected. I pray that he is walking faithful and that those around him weren't tainted and fallen off. But it's so easy for this to happen. And if that's you, 
Maybe we don't even know who you are yet. But if that's you, I would implore you to repent and ask forgiveness of the Lord. The warning, I think, also does something else. It offers comfort to the church. Comfort to the church. How so? Well, not only do we have the tools given to us by Jesus to protect ourselves from false prophets, but we also have the assurance from Christ that He will avenge us and that He will deal with those who try to devour us. It's not us. We're not the one who goes and and rips things out and fights. We discern, we mark, we be careful. The elders of the church are charged with teaching sound doctrine and refuting those who contradict, according to Titus 1.9. But we are not to go and try to rip out whole sections of the church and try to judge. That's Christ's job. But my friends, take heart. He will do it. He will judge and He will punish those who seek to harm the bride of Christ. Why? Because He loves us. And He has sworn by His own name to protect us. And He has called prophets and apostles and in our day, pastors and teachers to teach faithfully the Word of God and to minister to the saints, to encourage and admonish and strengthen and correct. And whenever I see somebody messing with the church, I get very afraid. Not for us, but for them. Because they don't know with whom they are dealing. They don't know the judgment that's coming if they try to lead believers astray. When they oppose the bride of Christ, when they attack us, when they try to ruin us, it hurts us. But I fear for them. Because Christ is coming in fire and in judgment to pour out condemnation on those who do not obey the gospel and who seek to devour this body. Either make your tree, as Jesus says, bad and suffer judgment, or make the tree good by repentance and faith and find life. My friends, there is a narrow way that leads to life. There is the right way of truth, the way of Christ. And as we're going to see, there is a way to know who belongs to Him. We'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for your truth. God, what a tremendous honor and privilege and responsibility it is to declare your truth, to expound on your doctrine. And Father, I pray for the elders of this church that we would never, ever take that responsibility lightly. I pray, Lord, that you would help us and help me to rightly divide the word of truth, to test everything, to work hard that the doctrine and belief of this church would remain pure and strong. And Lord, I ask that if there are ever times when there is error creeping in or being taught, that you would reveal that so that we might repent and be corrected and go the right way. Lord, protect this church. Protect the witness of this church. 
protect the gospel here. And Lord, I pray that we would do the work of discerning truth from error, to be able to to spot false prophets and turn away from them. And Lord, that if they do come in, that you would purge them from us. Not out of our hatred or out of our malice toward them, but out of protection of the doctrine of this church and our gospel witness. Purify your bride, protect us, guard us, and guide us. I ask you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.